So this morning, I invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 16. We've already heard of God's call to Abram in Genesis 12. And we've heard of God's justifying grace in Christ Jesus in Romans 4. And now we have just heard of God's new life for His church by His Holy Spirit in John 3, through the story of Nicodemus. Our text this morning is an account of Christ and Nicodemus's first meeting and the conversation that followed. There's hardly more of an important passage in the Bible than this one. Nowhere else do we find a stronger statement about the Christian new birth. Nowhere else do we find a clearer understanding of God's plan of salvation by faith in His Son. And so we cannot afford to be ignorant about these two crucial aspects of the Christian faith. The new birth and salvation by faith. Like Abraham, we must hear, listen, and obey God's call. Like Paul, we must grasp the depths of God's justifying gift that we should have never received. And like Nicodemus, we must be born again and practice the saving faith that only is found and lived through the Holy Spirit. If we are to be encouraged, if we are to mature in the faith, as Nicodemus did, if we are to defeat the enemy and who seeks to destroy us and deceive us, then we must become well acquainted with Jesus and Nicodemus's conversation. And so I ask, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to truly believe? After all, this seems to be the topic in our scripture readings this morning. What does it mean to truly believe? I'll be providing five answers to this question. But before I do, let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we see you. May we see you, Lord, in faith, by believing and clinging to your promises for us. May we see you in faith, encouraged and delighted in your work and your reward. May we see you in faith by receiving your love, for you first loved us, that we can love you. Yes, Lord, may we see you in faith. Stir our hearts with faith to believe in you as our Lord and our Savior. May the words of my mouth May the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So what does it mean to truly believe? Believing means that one may start poorly, but will finish well. 
And this is what we see. Look at verse 1. We are told of a Pharisee named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. Did you catch that? You see, there's little doubt that Nicodemus acted from fear, not faith. He came at night. Secretly, he sought to inquire of Jesus. Perhaps he was afraid of what others might say or think. He came by night because he did not have the faith and the courage to come by day. And yet, this is the same Nicodemus who defended his Lord in broad daylight to the council of the Jews in John chapter 6. He said to the Pharisees, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? This is not only the evidence of Nicodemus' change from his early days. He was one of the two who honored Jesus' dead body after the crucifixion. When even the apostles had fled, Nicodemus helped Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus' body. How many of us have come to Jesus by night for fearful reasons? Perhaps it is night even now for some of us. Like Nicodemus here, perhaps some of us have not yet been illuminated with that faith that transforms our life, changes us. If this is you, be encouraged. Be encouraged by the witness of Nicodemus, for his last acts are far greater than his first acts. As the prophet Zechariah says, do not despise the day of small things. Small things they may be, but truthful they are. For the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed that is seemingly insignificant. But it grows into one of the largest plants, doesn't it? The kingdom of God is like inconspicuous leaven that is hidden in flour, but when baked, it's transformed into white, fluffy bread. Do not despise the tiny and seemingly insignificant first steps. No matter how flawed or weak they may be, do not despise them. Do not be discouraged by them. When you find yourself feeling this way, look to Him, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Think of how He is before all things and He holds all things together. You may be secretly sitting here, but you are hearing God's Word. You are hearing it nevertheless. Despite how feeble and frail you may be, God is moving and He is moving in you, building and strengthening you. Think of how He is strengthening your feeble knees and transforming you into His glorious likeness. Think of this in faith. Our first steps toward God are often timid and wavering and weak. But that is not how our last steps are. The young soul is often ambiguous and hesitant. But how truthful are those first steps? So let us look to Christ. Let us be intrigued of Christ. And let us be captivated of Christ. And yes, let us imitate Him. For here we find a lesson for how we are to treat others as well. Let us imitate the reception that is extended to Nicodemus and is extended to Abraham 
and is extended to us. Let us not think that there is a lack of grace in ourselves or in those who we love. Do not be judgmental. Rather, let us be hopeful and let us be humble and open to the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, like Jesus, let us take inquirers by the hand. Let us deal with them gently and lowly and lovingly. Let us not judge them by their flaws, but let us judge them with the hope of the gospel whereby the Holy Spirit deposits in their hearts that mustard seed faith. Yes, let us see ourselves and others not as those fumbling in the darkness because of fear. Let us see ourselves as boldly defending Christ in broad daylight because that's how we will end. Yes, we will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and all throughout the world. We will be martyrs, martyria, witness. That's how we end. Children of God, believing means that we may start poorly, but that we will finish well. Secondly, believing means that one must have a real and radical change. Now look at verse 3. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus repeats this same truth in different words in verse 5. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see how Jesus helps Nicodemus to understand that no one can follow him unless their inward person is thoroughly cleansed by the Spirit as their outward person is cleansed by water. There is, in fact, a great change that is needed for entering the kingdom of God. It is a thorough change of the heart and the will and the character. It's a resurrection change, a new creation change. It's a passing from death to life change. All of this, and nothing less than this, is implied when Jesus says that we must be born again. You see, believing or saving faith, a lively faith, means that one must have real and radical change, transformation. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. We need a real and radical change. We come into this world without faith or love or fear towards God. We have no natural inclination to serve Him, obey Him, or to do His will. Left to ourselves, we cannot turn to God. And so Jesus says it perfectly, doesn't He? He says we must be born again, made new, new creatures in Christ. He calls this change a birth. We're not the authors of ourselves or our souls. He is. The same power that created the world must create us anew. We can do many things, but to give ourselves life and to give others life, we cannot do. We are not the Messiah. We are not the author and the perfecter. No, we cling to Him. We trust in Him. Just as Yahweh called, prom, called and promised, credited and confirmed and kept Abram 
so will he do this with every one of his beloved children. He will create them anew by making them able to believe and obey what he has commanded. You see, great change is required for entering the kingdom of God. We must be willing to leave everything behind and truly believe in the God of Abraham, Nicodemus, and the Apostle Paul. We must be like the man who finds a pearl, buries it in a field, and sells all that he has and buys the field. You see, there's a real responsibility to truly believing in Christ. When we see that shiny pearl, when God reveals to us that shiny pearl, we must be willing to leave everything behind that is near and dear. Yes, we must truly love Him. We must be truly captivated by Him and willing to stretch out into the deep and the dangerous, tumultuous even, waters of Him. I'm reminded of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, where he says, There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted all the voyages of their life, are they bound in shallows and miseries? On such a full sea are we now afloat. We must take the current when it serves, or lose our venture. When taken by the flood of faith, do not resist it. Do not struggle against it. Rather, believe in the venture of the Father, the tide of the Son, the current of the Holy Spirit. Believe that real and radical change is, in fact, required. If we hope to ever surf upon that glorious tide, then we must believe not in ourselves, but in the one who is mighty as the ocean. Yes, we must believe in the one who is as merciful as the Father. Yes, believe that if we wish to be saved, we must have real and radical change. Thirdly, believing means that while marvelous and incomprehensible, believing is known by word and deed. True faith is known by word and deed. Look at verses 7 and and eight. Jesus saw that Nicodemus was confused by what he had heard. And so Christ graciously gave him a helpful illustration. And what does he use? He uses the wind to illustrate the work of the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? You see, there's much about the working of the Holy Spirit that is mysterious and indescribable. You do not know, says Jesus, where the wind comes from or where it goes. We cannot hold it with our hands. We cannot see it with our eyes. When it blows, we are unable to point out where it begins or where it ends. But despite not knowing these things, we do not deny its presence, do we? And so is the same with those who truly believe because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The wind and the work of the Spirit may be mysterious, powerful, and incomprehensible to us in many ways, but to stumble at them because we can't explain them is foolishness. Let us not stumble because we do not fully know. You see, the point is not the science, but it's the reality of the presence. We know when the Holy Spirit is working 
in our lives because the Holy Spirit brings about transformational change, real change, lively change, changing us from death to life. The prophet Habakkuk says that the righteous live by faith because their faith is a result of their love for the one who first loved them. That's why they live by faith. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He gives us this uncanny love that conquers all. What is it that Paul says? The love of Christ shall not separate us from anything. Not peril, sword, nakedness. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And that is what the Holy Spirit gives to us. A love that is living and active in faith. So whatever mystery there may be about the wind, its presence is known by its sound and effect. For you hear its sound, that says Jesus in verse 8. When our ears hear its whistling in the windows and our eyes see the tree limbs shaking, we know that there is wind. And so is the same for the Holy Spirit in making us true believers. However marvelous and incomprehensible it may be, it can always be seen and known. True and lively faith cannot be hidden. There will always be undeniable fruit of the Spirit. So let us show the fruit of the Spirit. I ask, can others see, hear, and sense the Spirit at work in our lives? Are we showing them the fruit of the Spirit? The same apostle who wrote this gospel tells in his epistle that those who are born again are those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe that he's the Christ. They are those who do not continue to practice sin, he tells us. They are those who continue to practice righteousness, he says. They are those who practice loving followers of Christ, and they are those who overcome the world. These are those who are born again. These are those who are believing and clinging to the trustworthy promises of Christ Jesus, the one who has first loved us so that we can love him. This is the one who is born in the spirit. These are those who truly believe, and these are those who whose faith is known by their words and their deeds. Fourthly, believing means that one's faith is not measured by one's status or position or education or success. Look at verses 9 to 15. Truth is approached differently if we are to be born again and if we are to receive salvation. It's approached differently than that of the world. You see, if we are to believe, then we will see not the facade of this world, but the truth that lies behind it. We'll not see the facade. I remember being in Italy and seeing the facade of these churches. And then behind that facade is the actual building, the foundation, the blocks. You see, spiritual truth is what we ought to focus on. And spiritual truth is behind the facade of this world. Spiritual truth must also, though, parallel natural truth. 
You see, whatever is deemed true naturally, so is true spiritually. And this is why Jesus admonishes Nicodemus in this verse, verse 10. For he's one of the teachers of the Israel. And yet he does not understand the spiritual truth for which Christ is sharing to him. Several years ago, I heard an example of how spiritual truth must parallel natural truth. And it goes like this. If I were driving down the road and I see a tree in the middle of the road ahead, I would be foolish to continue on that same course of direction, wouldn't I? It would only lead to my death. And so is the same in the spirit. If I'm spiritually driving down a road and there's a tree right in the middle of the road, I cannot continue on that course of travel if I wish to be saved. And this is why Jesus admonishes this teacher who is to know, and yet he is ignorant of the spiritual reality. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You see how natural and spiritual truth parallel? The distinct difference of Christian truth is not that it does not parallel nature, but that it requires a different kind of believing, a supernatural kind of believing, a faith that is not of our own. But it's Jesus, the resurrected and revealed Christ, believing in and through us. This is why great educated people are spiritually ignorant. The ladder to heaven is not rank, wealth, or prestige, or knowledge, but that we may be illuminated with this unconquerable faith by the Holy Spirit. And when we are, the Spirit will open our eyes to the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold wisdom is like a diamond with multifacets, brilliant, complex. We will be open to the manifold wisdom of God and see things clearly with this unconquerable faith through the Holy Spirit. Yes, we will see things differently. We will read scriptures differently. Like Jesus, we will understand that just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness to heal Israel, so Christ has been lifted up so that whoever sees him as the promised one of salvation may have eternal life. And that's where Jesus takes us, isn't it, in the passage? We must believe in him. Not in status or position or education or success, but we must believe in him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, Believing means that the source of faith springs from what? Springs from the Father's love. That's where faith comes from. Look at verse 16. Jesus says to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's been said that this is the Bible in miniature, this single verse is the Bible in miniature. No part of it, perhaps, is so deeply important as the first five words, God so loved the world. 
You see, this describes the pity and compassion that God has for all humankind. The object of Christ's love is not limited to a select few, but for the whole world. Every single person, all sinners. And this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all His works. It is not true that God so loved the world that everyone will be saved, but that He so loved the world that He gave His Son to be the Savior for all those who believe. You see, His love is offered freely and fully, honestly and unreservedly, but it's for those who believe in the redeeming work of Christ. Like Nicodemus, if we truly believe in Christ's good news for us, we cannot remain in the dark. Like Abram, if we truly believe, we cannot remain in our comforts. Rather, we must tell others through word and deed that God so loves them. See, there is a rich kindness in God toward us. It was this love that resulted in Christ coming into the world and dying the death that we deserved. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not willing that any perish. God would have that all people be saved. And why? Because God so loves the world. So let us remember who He is. A loving Father. A loving Son. A loving Holy Spirit. A loving God. He is the God who calls and credits, confirms, and keeps. Yes, let us remember the character of God. After all, how can God judge the whole world unless He loves the whole world? You see, God is love. The love of pity and compassion with which God regards all of us is pure and rich and just, while His love for the world is unquestionably distinct from His love for the church. It is indeed a love of pity, not approval or compliance. It is a love that clears God of injustice in judging the world. And here lies the grand glimpse of God's majesty. The God who loves each of us deeply is the one who is far above our grasp and our understanding. But there is simple truth here that must not be overlooked. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him we might believe and be saved. That's why He sent His Son. For the saving faith that we might cling to His promises, that we might truly believe. There's no unwillingness on God's part to receive us, but we must believe in Him. We must love Him, and above everything else, and above everyone else, we must love Him. We must ask ourselves whether we want to be changed. Do we truly want God? Not whether we want someone else to change, or something else to change, but whether we desire Him to be like Him, 
Do we wish to love God more than anything else? Because the change that is required is not an intellectual change, a spiritual change. That's what it is. We must truly believe in the God who calls and credits and confirms and keeps. Church, we may start off weak, but we will end strong. We may be undeniably flawed, but one day we will glow in the perfection of our Heavenly Father. We may not understand the many mysteries of our faith now, but we'll understand every detail one day. We may be judged by the flesh and the world and the devil, but one day we will forever be just judged by the delight of the Holy Spirit. And we may love the Father conditionally, but do you know that He loves you unconditionally? Without expectation, there's not a single thing that you can do that can cause God to love you any more or any less. He loves you unconditionally. So what does it mean to believe? It means that we can love faithfully and we can love unconquerably because God first loved us. Amen.